We're going to consider the 133rd Psalm, Psalm 133, but why? <laughs> Maybe you see the, the question, uh, do you, uh, this Psalm is very often reserved for times of discord, isn't it? Reserved for times of kind of disunity and disharmony, let's say a congregation falls out with each other. You know, they're at each other's throats, there's kind of two factions, and maybe the presbytery is called to intervene. And so the presbytery come along, and they maybe send a, a, a minister, a visiting minister, to come along the following Sunday, and they tell him, okay, you go along there and you preach on Psalm 133, and, and you hit them with, with unity. Well, here's the thing, uh, as far as I know... Hey, that's not happening here, although I could be wrong. I hope you are not trying to kill each other uh, when my back is turned. So why are we looking at Psalm 133 tonight? Friends, it comes down to this. We must not be complacent. As we're going to see in a moment or two, unity is utterly fundamental to the Christian faith. It's its significance, the importance of unity cannot be overstated. We must not place. And our unity is something that you and I should be always focused on. Our unity should be something straight ahead of us. It should be something that, that every single one of us in here is working towards at London City Presbyterian Church. And so that is why tonight we're going to look at this psalm, Psalm 133. And there's a number of things uh, this evening that we need to focus on. First of all, is the fact that Christian unity is exquisite. That's the first thing. Christian unity is exquisite. So what do I mean by that? Well, I think if we were kind of careless, and if we just skim-read the psalm, we might miss what is said about its authorship. So I wonder if you'd look at the superscription uh, to the psalm. Do you see the title? Do you see what it says? Who's, who writes this psalm? It's a psalm of David. Now, you might think that that helps us an awful lot. I'm not sure that it does. <laughs> because, yes, we know that David was a man who was familiar with disunity on a personal level, wasn't he? And he was familiar with disunity on a national level. Here's the problem, though. We don't really know when he, has, he wrote the psalm, we, we don't know the occasion. So I actually think we are helped more by what else is said in the superscription and the title. So do you see what else we're told? This is one of the songs of ascent. Now, if you were uh, here a couple of weeks ago, do you remember what we said, what these songs of ascent were? And we likened them, uh, perhaps foolishly, to the Tartan army. Uh, do you remember that? Uh, the crowds going up to Hamden uh, to watch Scotland inevitably lose a game of football. These songs, the songs of ascent, they were festive songs, weren't they? These were the songs that the people of Israel would sing as they traveled from miles and miles around up to Jerusalem for the three annual festivals that were to be held in the city. The songs of ascent. And you can see, I think, I hope, what is happening in the psalm. It's almost like you're being invited by David to gaze upon that scene. Because look at the first word of the psalm. Do you see it? Behold! <laughs> Do you see what he's doing? He's almost David saying to you tonight, come and check this out. Like, come on, come and, come and look at this. As he shows you that scene, all of 
the people going up to Jerusalem and you see them, there's different ages and different stages, different parts of Israel, different tribes and they all converge in Jerusalem. And what do we see? Ah, we look at them and we see that they are united before the Lord, their God. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's a lovely scene. We get the scene, but actually it is the assessment of the scene that I think we're supposed to fix our eyes upon. Now, a couple of weeks ago, after our morning service, I was speaking to uh, one of the members of the congregation, and we were discussing the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. We were just talking about the way that Genesis 1 is written. You know it very well, don't you? The the intricacy of Genesis 1, the care that's obviously been taken. We were talking about the repetition in Genesis chapter 1. Now, you know it. So what's the most obvious example of repetition in Genesis chapter 1? And each day... God looks at what he's created and what does he see? He sees that it is, it's good. Or he says it's very good. Now, my friends, you can see that that's almost a twofold assessment at creation, isn't it? Like God in saying that it's good, he is not just saying that what he's created is virtuous. He's not just saying that this is morally, ethically right. What else is he saying? He's saying it's just aesthetically pleasing. (laughs) You know, what he's created is just pleasing to the eye, you see? Now, isn't that what David is saying here? Because look at this. He looks on, what does he see? He sees the brothers dwelling in unity. What is his assessment? Do you see? He says this scene is good and it's pleasant. Do you see what we've got here? This picture of a united worshipping community is not just the correct thing. It's not just the right thing for the children of God. It's also something that is just plain beautiful. This is lovely to behold, this unity. So let me ask you this question tonight, friends. What is it that you think is most pleasing to God in your life? What is it you think as a Christian pleases God the most about your life? Do you think it's when you witness to other people or do you think it's when you're obedient? Do you think it's when you're, you're serving God well in the church? All of that, yes. But do you see what is right up there? Perhaps even at the top. It's times when you are working for the unity of the people of God, maybe even the unity of London City Presbyterians, that there is paramount to the God who has created you. And do you believe me? Well, consider that first reading in John chapter 17. You know what the high priestly prayer I mean, you've got the Father, the Son. We're given access into a conversation between the members of the Trinity. And it's on the night before Jesus goes to his death. And what does Jesus want more than anything? Father, I desire that we, you are one as they are one. Do you see it? This unity that we are dealing with tonight is utterly essential, isn't it? It's not just something that's pleasing, pleasant to David. It's something that is good. It's something that is pleasant to the Lord our God. Christian unity 
is exquisite. Second thing that we see here is that Christian unity is evidentiary in the sense that Christian unity gives evidence of something. And I think what we've looked at there is perhaps the primary point of Psalm 133. Christian unity is a beautiful thing to God. But David has not finished the psalm. So I wonder if you'd do this with me, friends. Would you look at the way he begins verses 2 and 3? And you'll see it, I'm sure. And both, he begins it the same way, doesn't he? He begins it. Christian unity, it is like. He gives you and I, he gives us two similes that describe the unity of the people of God. So I'll tell you what we'll do. Let's take the first of those. What is it in verse 2? If you look at it with me, what's Christian unity like? <laughs> it is like uh, the precious oil on the head, running down the beard of whom? Of Aaron. <laughs> I remember, I remember vividly singing that for the very first time. I had just become a Christian and uh, I went by myself into a free church in Inverness. I'd never been in a free church before and I went into the free church and uh, I remember standing there thinking, this is the weirdest thing that I have ever done in my life. And before I was a Christian, I'd done a lot of strange things. And here I was, uh, standing there singing about oil dripping down some guy's beard. And I did not know what was happening. You see it though, don't you? Like we, when we recognize it from Scripture, we understand this. This is Exodus chapter 29, isn't it? Isn't it? This is oil being applied to Aaron in the process of becoming the high priest. We understand the reference, but we're still left with the the question, in what way then is unity like oil? Like how is unity of the people of God, how, how does the simile even work? Well, why was the oil applied? I mean, it wasn't applied for the sake of it. It wasn't a practical joke. Was it? No. The oil was applied as a way of setting Aaron aside for this work, wasn't it? Like the oil was actually a symbol. It was a side that this man Aaron was consecrated for a work. For What was the work? The work of the priesthood. Now I wonder if you see then what David is saying. He's saying the very same thing of Christian unity. The friend, if a congregation of God's people, if it experiences true unity, what happens? We demonstrate to the world that God is in action. That that congregation, if it really experiences unity, it actually shows the world something. It demonstrates to the world. It evidences to the world that God has set those people aside. And why? He set them aside for, that's right, for the priesthood, for the priesthood of all believers. And I think that is an amazing thought, that unity, our unity in here, it can demonstrate to the world that God works. But it's the same thing that Jesus said in in the high priestly prayer. Is it not? I mean, we've seen that Jesus, on the night before his death, he wanted unity of the children of God. But why? Why did he want that unity? What was the purpose? That they might be one. Yes, they, as he, as they are one. But why? 
that the world might see that Jesus has been sent by his Father, God. Our unity, friends, evidences the gospel. It shows people that God sets others aside and sets them aside for his service. So we see that Christian unity is exquisite. It is evidentiary. Thirdly, Christian unity is enlivening. Enlivening. Now, every now and again, uh, when I'm uh, writing a sermon, a sermon preparation, I get a sort of pang, a little pang to go visit uh, the land of Israel. And and maybe you can see (laughs) uh, why that is. Uh, writing away, studying away, portion of scripture, and it'll maybe make, make mention of a place name or a geographical feature of the land, and I'll sort of be sitting there in my study thinking, I really wish I could see that almost with my own eyes. I'm sure you can kind of uh, understand. Well, that sort of happened this week. Uh, because you'll notice that as David carries on in the psalm in verse 3, do you see that he makes mention of a place name? He speaks of Mount Herman. And the more I studied that this week, the more I thought, wow, I, I want to see this. Because friends, Mount Herman sounds wonderful. So it was the highest mountain in all of uh, Israel. It was a snow-capped mountain sitting up there way in the north of the country. But the most striking feature was its vegetation. Like Mount Hermon has got this reputation of having a lot of moisture and, and dew in the morning. And what does that mean? That means that, of course, it's green, it's lush, that the area around us is absolutely beautiful. Now, that might not sound exciting to us. I'm from Scotland. So, uh, you know, moisture in the mornings, you know, on the ground is maybe not all that common in the north of Scotland. But I need you to see how critical... Dew is in the Bible. You know, think about this. In in, in Genesis uh, chapter 27, the very first thing that Isaac does when he is blessing his sons is what? He calls that God would bless them with dew. And then in the Proverbs as well, a king's favor, a king's favor is likened to dew. Second Samuel, an absence of dew is oh, it's seen as being an awful thing, an absolutely terrible thing. And you can see why, can't you? Where are we here? We're not in Scotland. We're in the Middle East. Dew, moisture is going to be all the difference between a, a crop failing and a crop getting to harvest time. And that's the picture you've got in the psalm. Isn't it dew coming to a dry? And ah, like a parched land. And it's because it's not Herman in verse 3. That isn't the focus. Do you see what the focus is? It's, it's Judea. Like this is a, a picture of Jerusalem, Zion. Maybe in the sort of bacon, bacon heat in the summer. Everything's dry. Horrible, horrible heat, dryness. And then all of a sudden what happens? Oh. Dew arrives in the morning. And it's a Jew like that of Herman. They've heard of this. And it's a Jew that suddenly brings everything to, to life. It's glorious. It's beautiful. And the rejoicing. Do you see the message of Psalm 133? Do you see what God is saying to us? Christian unity is like the dew. See what that means for you? Unity here can refresh your 
Isn't that lovely? Unity, when it comes to a worshipping community, it can revive, revitalize the people of God. I mean, you know that dryness that can come upon us as Christians. A dryness of soul. A dryness of heart. And what is God saying in the psalm? He's saying, ah, but if there is unity, the unity will wash that dryness away that suddenly our spiritual lives will, think of the Jew, they'll blossom. Think of Herman, it'll, it'll flourish. And do you know what's most exciting? Think of the Jew. The unity provides the perfect conditions for new life. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what this congregation is about, surely? Isn't it appealing how you and I should long for oneness in this church? And then the last thing here, Christian unity is exquisite, it is evidentiary, it is enlivening, but Christian unity is also enacted. Now the We've thought a lot about sermons and preaching because we are looking to appoint a, an assistant minister. And the role of a sermon in a church is not just to explain a portion of scripture, is it? There's a lot of things going on in a sermon. A sermon is to point you and I to Christ Jesus, to be rooted in the gospel. A sermon is also to be applied Yes, to teach us how we live as Christians. And it's that element that's fundamental here. Do you not think in Psalm 133? Because we can talk forever about how important unity is in the church. But what do we do? Like, how is a congregation to change if we're going to experience unity? What are we to do to foster unity? And, And that's what I want us to consider here. So what do we need to do here? Well, we could talk about the obvious things, I think. I mean, we could talk about how, how, how do we foster unity here? Well, friends, we, we don't talk ill of one another when that person's back is turned. We, that kills the unity of the people of God, doesn't it? We could talk about that. We could talk about the fact that we need to be at church. <laughs> like we have unity if we're not here. We could, Talk about the fact that we need to open our lives to our brothers and sisters. How can we be united before God if we don't know one another? We could talk about the obvious things. I don't want to do that here though. Friends, I don't want to just speak generally about application of unity. Let's base that in the text. I want to talk about what we see from Psalm 133. So what have we got here? First thing is this. We must pray for unity. And where do we see that? David doesn't even talk about praying in the psalm. I wonder though if you notice this. All the way through the psalm, I think very, 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 very subtly, David is showing you where Christian unity comes from. Where it actually is derived. It's very subtle. But even think about the similes. What are the similes? What's that first one? Unity is like oil. So it is something that is poured out on us. Isn't it? And it's something that's poured out on us from on high. And then think about that second simile. What was it like far off in Mount Hermon, like the Jew up there? Do you see Christian unity comes from far off? Do you see the lesson here? Do you see what David is saying to us? 
Christian unity is not something that you and I can achieve. Like, we don't just make a little change to London City Presbyterian Church and we can sort of work our way towards Christian unity. That is not how it works. Christian unity, according to the New Testament, is unity of the Holy Spirit. This is something that comes from God. We want unity. What do we do? We must pray for this. Is there anything that would please God more than if this week every single one of us in here, if we spent some real time praying for the oneness and the unity of London City Presbyterian Church? We've got to pray for unity. Second thing we must do is keep our eyes fixed on heaven. See, I wonder if you would look to see how this psalm ends. Do you see it? David speaks of this united community, this unified community. He says, there the Lord has commanded the blessing. What is the blessing, friends? It is life forevermore. And I think it is that eternal aspect that is so important when we're dealing with unity. It's a joy for me to say this every time I say it. But if you're in Christ Jesus, you and I one day will enter into the new heavens and the new earth. And what is one of the most beautiful aspects of that heavenly home that's coming to us in Christ Jesus? There, there will be not even a hint of disharmony. Like no disagreement with anyone. No disunity amongst the children of God. There will be people from all walks of life gather from, from different tribes and nation tongues, all these different people gathered around Jesus and what will mark us? We will be as one. There will be perfect harmony. And so do you see what we've got to do now? What is the church about? We've got to seek to emulate that future, that coming home that we strive after that. We, we emulate it. We emulate it now. We emulate it in this earth. And we seek to emulate it even in this church. We pray, but we keep our eyes fixed in heaven. And then the last one, the last thing this evening, we want unity. We must keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there's this difficult truth that we've got to deal with when we talk about Christian unity. Why do Christians fight? Why do churches split? I'll give you the answer. It's me. And it's you. We are egotistical people. And we are full of pride. And when it comes to the church, we want to be the people calling the shots. We want to be the people who have the say in every matter. And if we want unity here, true spiritual unity, do you see what must happen? You and I must decrease. And the Lord Jesus Christ must increase in this place. And why is that? It's not just because the Lord Jesus in the New Testament teaches about unity. It's not just because this is Jesus' church. Why is It's because the Lord Jesus Christ has actually enabled our unity. Like he's done it all. I mean, what did he do for us? He bore our sins on the cross. What happened? How did that happen? 
He was the only one who enjoyed unity with God. And what happened with his father? He at the cross had that unity severed. Severed for you, severed to win you, severed so that you and I might have peace. Unity with God. Peace, unity with our brothers and sisters in here. Do you see it? It must be the gospel. It must be Christ Jesus that is the center if we are going to experience Christian unity in this place. So I hope, if anything tonight, that the Holy Spirit has shown you how crucial the unity of Christians is. I I hope that from this moment on that we... We prioritize Christian unity more than we have ever done before in this church. And, and, and why? So that the world sees. So that we demonstrate to other people that our God is actually a God who works. He's a God who sets people aside for his service. That they see that. But also that this happens so in our united congregation. That it might be the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone who receives all of the praise and all of the glory. Let's pray.